0: Would you please turn with me in your copy of the Scriptures to Matthew's Gospel in Matthew chapter 27. This is part of a series, and I'd like to say towards the end of the series, in the Gospel of Matthew and learning about the king, the kingdom and kingdom living, and one of our dear members this week wrote me an email and said, what is uh, the next series of messages that you'll be preaching from? What book of the Bible will we be pre- preaching from? And I chuckled and said to Jennifer, I guess they think I'm going to, going to finish this series before the Lord returns, because uh, we still have some ways to go, even though it's, it's a chapter left. We've been in this book for, I think, almost three years, and I hope it's become part of your life, and that's our goal. And uh, truth be told, our planning out looks like at the end of October, we may be done with this book, but I always hate to say goodbye to a book. I'm so thankful that it's, there, it's still there in our Bibles when we close it, but uh, if any preacher of the Word, any teacher of the Word knows that you just begin to love a certain part of the Bible and, and uh, you're excited to launch into the next part of truth that God wants for you, but it, the Spirit applies the living Word in such a way that uh, you have fallen in love again and again and again with truth and with Christ. And uh, our prayer here is that as we walk through this book together, that really this is all of our hearts, that we're eager to receive truth and we're eager to know what the next pasture looks like that we'll be feeding from. And our prayer is that we'll be faithful to, to feed from that, that and certainly feel a high calling and a high sense of responsibility to labor in the word on, on your behalf that we could enjoy the rich truths together. We find ourselves in Matthew chapter 27, and it has been quite a journey. It is one of the longest chapters of Matthew, and it has uh, it has entailed all the way from the anointing of Jesus um, to the betrayal of Jesus, to the trials of Jesus, and to the scourging and even the crucifixion. And because of deference of time, we begin this morning at verse 51, and we have. Come to the place where Jesus has yielded up his spirit. And verse number 51 through 66 is the text of our sermon this morning. Please join with me there. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook. And the rocks were split, the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea, named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus then Pilate ordered it to be given to him and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb which he had cut out in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, That is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that impersonator, that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day. lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people. He was risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, "You have a guard of soldiers. go make it as secure as you can." So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Thus says the word of God. Would you pray with me? Low in the grave he lay. Jesus our Savior. Waiting the coming day. Jesus, our Lord. Father, we can't see in the tomb anymore. We could barely see him on the cross shrouded in darkness and and now we can't see him in the tomb. The Spirit of God has assured us that what is taking place in the tomb is taking place in such a wonderful way, that the tear-filled eyes of these women as they sit across the tomb, they cannot comprehend so great a thing that you are doing. And neither can we, Lord, unless the Holy Spirit opens our eyes. And so this morning, we pray that you would open our ears and our eyes to hear the Word of God. No familiarity of the passage or even of the story itself will rob the spirit from the joy of serving us and renewing in us the hope of our salvation and convicting us of unrighteousness, of sin and judgment, comforting us to know that there is a day coming when we too will be with Jesus in full glory, glorified bodies and glorified by his side, glorifying him. Oh, Father, may... May we both be faithful in the preaching of the word this morning and in the hearing of it, the applying of it. We pray that this hour will be sacred unto you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this week, as we have watched, I haven't watched any of it really, just seen pictures and reports, but of the, the, the tragic ending and the celebration of life of the dear Queen of England, Elizabeth, She's laid to rest, and all of the pomp and circumstance is just overwhelming, I'm sure, especially to those who are there, who are near. She is being celebrated, by the way, as you have gathered, in the most prolific and global means in human history. There has been no expense spared. I saw a headline this morning, I didn't tap on it, but but uh, talking about the expense of the extravagance that leads into this celebration of her, of her ceremonies and of her, of her funeral, it's just as easy for us to say she is the most celebrated woman, probably the most, the most prolific funeral of our lifetime, really maybe even of human history. And it's ironic that here we are in this passage this week, Because here we have a very significant and well loved monarch celebrated with really no expense spared, and virtually everybody in the world knows what has taken place. And here we are in this passage. And a king is laid to rest. And where is his ceremony? He is scurried off in privacy, notably only attended by his once most loyal followers. This morning we're going to be looking at three different sections of this passage as Matthew unfolds this. And he he wants to, to pack this full of a message, especially to Jewish Christians And even to Jewish unbelievers about many things about Christ that they should consider. Many things about the Holy Father as he offered Jesus to be that Passover lamb. And so this morning we'll be looking at the testifying signs and wonders. The testifying signs and wonders. We had already marked out in passage before how the the cross was shrouded in darkness from noon until three o'clock that day. Likely noting, likely that God would not allow man in our in our uncleanness and on our right, unrighteousness to behold Jesus in content, as as God would pour out His hot fury upon His Son, making Him to be the propitiation for our sins. We would not be able; to, we could not be able to behold, or we nor were we worthy to behold the lashings that the Father placed upon the Son on our behalf. And so God veiled His Son from our unworthy eyes. But as Matthew continues, he tells us of more testifying signs and wonders. And there were many striking miracles surrounding the death of Christ. And all of these signals, all of these miracles were meant to be a signal, a divine interruption into human indifference. As Matthew records these miracles, even his, his faithful recording of them is meant to cause us as readers to stop and consider the remarkable wonders that God was doing on behalf of his gracious revelation. You and I are meant to stop just as suddenly, just as dramatically as any who are eyewitnesses of those miracles on that day. But I want you to notice something, and, and Matthew is careful to show us this too, that none of the miracles involve any of his wrath towards those who are deserving of it. No one dies in the darkness. No one dies in the earthquake. No one dies in the temple. Yet everyone deserves for there to be a miraculous judgment upon them in this age. These, Matthew is showing us, these miracles are set apart from other miracles that seem so dramatic, especially when they're so earth-rattling like an earthquake as we have seen in the Old Testament. These miracles... Of revelation of gospel grace are are miracles of the revelation of Gospel grace, not miracles of divine judgment. All who experienced these miracles firsthand ought to have been struck with the idea that something of of the divine was unfolding to them. Matthew mentions here that an earthquake had taken place. I'm looking down at our passage here. An earthquake took place here. The earth shook in verse 51 and rocks were split. And which, by the way, seems to be the force by which the tombs were opened of certain saints. And when we look back through the scripture, we find that God has made the earth to rattle. But the first time that we see the earth rattling, at least in the presence of his covenant people, is in Exodus chapter 19. And you remember that in Exodus... Moses and the people are gathered around the, the Mount Sinai and God is covenanting with his people and giving them the law. He has brought them out of a, uh, by miraculous means from Egyptian slavery and now is establishing them as a people set apart for his own glory and he covenants together with them. But in Exodus chapter 19 as well as Hebrews refers to this as well that the mountain shook and the people's bodies literally rattled at the base of the mountain. And here as God gives the law, so great is His presence that the earth shakes and trembles when His voice declares the law. I would like to make an analogy here that here in God's silence, the earth shakes as God not only not gives the law, but gives the law of love. There like on Sinai, as God mentions, as God God declares His unbinding love with His people, so too now in the New Covenant, that being the Old Covenant, now in the giving of the New Covenant, the earth shakes and God declares His love now. The Old Covenant is passed and now the New Covenant has come upon you and it comes with the earth shaking. And it comes with God's declaration, this is my love for you. This is the New Covenant. We also notice that the curtain... Within the temple is torn. Now, this was not just any curtain. There was other parts of textures and fabrics all throughout the temple courts and around the temple. But this was the temple, the the veil that separated the general area inside the the main center part of the temple from the what we know as in the Old Testament the Holy of Holies. And this veil was only entered into one time a year by the high priest. Who would offer that perfect lamb and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat that is the cover of the Ark of the Covenant, that cherub hovering over and blazoned in gold, and the priest would then then as so to speak, atone for the sins of the nation for that year, offering that sacrifice only one time, but now the curtain has been torn in two. I want to remind you what is taking place in the temple on this day. Is it empty or is it occupied? And so there were many worshippers, and the priests were busy offering sacrifices of the Passover lands. and surely this was a public spectacle of the, of the rending of the veil. They had to deal with this. This was something they couldn't cover up. It happened in front of everybody. The priests were in awe, and you didn't just go to Walmart and get the next veil. And so this was a remarkable demonstration of God saying, now I am approachable, but not through the, the blood of this lamb or of these thousands and perhaps ten thousands of Passover lambs that were being offered on this day, but now the one true lamb has sprinkled His blood on the mercy seat in heaven. So as I say, He is the final lamb. And the curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. God was the one that would make the way to Himself. But no man could reach the top of the veil. And many worshipers and priests were offering the sacrifices. But now the final blood sacrifice had been offered so that anyone could enter. And this is another one of the testifying wonders and miracles. But the third one that Matthew is in a hurry to tell us about, he doesn't want to wait until after the resurrection, just a few moments later actually in his scroll, He talks about saints appearing. And this is such an unusual situation. Looking down at our passages, he says in verse number 52, the tombs are also opened. And many bodies of the saints, notice by the way, many, not all. We could use the word perhaps certain bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Select not all. This is very interesting because Matthew, as I said, was in a hurry to tell us about this. But these people did not appear, notice, until after, he says in verse 53, the resurrection, and they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now there is only one other time when we see many people raised from the grave in our Bibles. There's only one other time. We know what individual people, Lazarus, has been raised from the grave, Jairus' daughter, others have been raised, even Elijah had raised the widow's son from the grave, from from death. Those are all individual accounts, and even here, Jesus individually is is raised, of course, bringing many sons to glory. But it's only one other time, and it's worth referencing, and perhaps we can consider some things. Turn with me to Isaiah, uh, I'm sorry, Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel is prophesying to the people of Israel who have been uh, sent away into the bondage of Babylonian captivity. They were unfaithful to God. And so God, for a period of 70 years, sent his people out underneath the wicked king of Nebuchadnezzar, eventually under the Persian Empire. And we have characters like Ezra and Zerubbabel and Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And uh and Nehemiah, we have we have Esther, all those in that time frame. And Ezekiel is also one of those faithful prophets, and God is is ministering through Ezekiel and he is telling the people of, of his covenant that he loves them, that he is faithful to them, even though they were unfaithful to him, and he has a new chapter to unfold for them. And yet it seems so impossible. They are underneath the grips of, of the world empires. that you've learned about in elementary and in grade school, about the Roman Empire and the Egyptian Empire and the Persian Empire and the Medo-Persian Empire and the Babylonian Empire, I mean, these are significant empires. And you as just a small people group underneath the sovereign hand being assigned to captivity under their control, there is no hope for you to get out from underneath their rule unless God intervenes. And so the book of Lamentations and and their psalms written as the people strum their hearts and along the rivers there in Babylon and long for the days and weep as they sing. Oh God, be merciful to us and release us from this bondage. And Ezekiel, God comes to Ezekiel and he says, tell them what I will do. And, And he gives Ezekiel this amazing situation. He unfolds this amazing miracle in front of Ezekiel's eyes. In Ezekiel 37, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. This is the only other time in Scripture that we find so great a cloud of People that seemingly raise from the grave. Now, we don't know what takes place here as this unfolds here in Ezekiel 37. We don't know. It does not appear that this army goes into uh, Xerxes' palace and, you know, and uh, creates a coup and marches God's people. It does not appear that's what takes place. Actually, no reference following the making alive of these. So, too, here in Matthew 27. You and I, we don't know what happens to these states after they enter into the Holy City on that Lord's Day, on on, uh, that third day when Jesus rose from the grave. We don't know. And if you feel just a little more curious about it, Matthew says, I'm just not going to tell you Because it's a greater resurrection than what takes place in raising up our loved ones from the grave and marching them into our homes to testify that this salvation is true, that the hope is secured, you have placed your hope in the right place, He is alive. Matthew wants you to know that the focus of the resurrection is on the Resurrector. And so He doesn't tell you. And so don't spend time wondering. Because Matthew drives you forward and says they will testify, but only after the one that's the most important one has raised from the grave. After he was risen from the grave. And so from the earthquake to the torn veil, to the saints appearing, none of these would move the heart of man. But all of them would help to prepare the unbelieving heart to receive the good news. Such is providence. The rhythms of common grace and the providential care of God of the unbelieving show His tremendous patience and mercy as God reveals the gospel to those who will believe. Friends, brothers, sisters in Christ, how is God working in the hearts of unbelievers all around you? It may not be the veil torn in front of them, it may not be the dead raised to life walking in front of them, it might not be an earthquake. But don't discount a single means of God's grace as He invades and interrupts their life in blessings and in cursings, calling them unto belief in His saving grace. God is still working in the unbelieving heart. And He may not do so through the veil. But He is calling you and I to go like the saints went into Jerusalem to testify when you place your hope in the resurrection power of Jesus the Christ You have placed it in a sure thing. You and I, you and I are the dead men alive walking. There's more wonder in that, by the way. There's more wonder in that, infinitely more wonder that you are saved than that these dead bodies rose from the grave. We were more dead than physically dead when Jesus came to save us. Number two, the second section that Matthew draws our attention to is some faithful disciples, some faithful disciples. And we see that these, there's these three women. And Matthew tells us that they had been ministering to Jesus um, in verse number 55 ever since he had come from Galilee, from his hometown. They had been ministering to him. They had been ministering, they were there from looking from a distance. And this isn't meant by Matthew, I don't believe, to, to infer any part of shame or disgrace or fear even. But just in this, this sobbingness and, and there's soldiers around, you know, and there's stuff. I mean, they don't really have a place yet to come close to the one. Especially in Mary's case, who had been so near to him, even physically. They ministered to him. And we're told that there is these three women. And it's interesting just to note, and, and by the way, we, we have seen the significance that Matthew placed on people when he brings their names out in front. Like when we see Barabbas, and when we see Simon of Cyrene, and when we see, when we see um, others that he's, that he's named Judas throughout his book, here he names three women. And the first is Mary Magdalene, and she appears to us, from what we can tell, to be a woman who is unmarried. Another Mary that he mentions is the Mary of the mother of James and Joseph. Notice that he identifies her as the mother of James and Joseph. So she's a mother, Mary, a mother of James and Joseph. James, called James the Last, by the way. To distinguish him from the other James, of James and John, who are brothers, who are the sons of Zebedee, I'll mention then in the next moment. And notice, Mary Magdalene, likely uh, living single. Um, secondly, Mary, mother of James and Joseph, but then now, now we have a third Mary, but how is she mentioned here? We do notice that she's mother, but then she's called the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So she's a wife. (laughs) Not to say that Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, wasn't a wife, but here I just want to make a a note here. Here we have a single woman. That is her identity of Christ and she is honoring Christ. And even in in his death, we have a, 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 a woman who is identified as mothering and she is identifying with Christ and devoted to honoring him. And we have Thirdly, a wife who is not with her husband either and is honoring Christ. So we have a a single woman, a mother woman, and a married woman, even though there's crossover in some of those. Notice this. Notice also that we have seen through the theme of the book of Matthew that it seems that the most tender among Christ's disciples the most tender-hearted among his followers, have been women. But it is not helpful to the gospel story that these women are part of this whole situation. If this was to be fabricated, we've mentioned this before, this is not a detail to be included. This is not helpful that he's so readily identifying women and these women as being eyewitnesses of a sealed tomb. So he continues on, and he tells us about a man named Joseph of Arimathea. Arimathea was about a day's distance, or about a good day's distance of a walk from Jerusalem. And Joseph seems to be a very wealthy man, and he also seems to be part of the religious leaders, part of the Sanhedrin. One might wonder why this man, if he's part of the religious leaders, Why is he now asking for the body of Jesus? Did he bow out like Matthew did? Did he bow out like Peter did when it came time for the trials and didn't stand up for Christ? Likely, many have suggested, theologians, that it's simply that he wasn't part of the select crew that Caiaphas called to his house in that monkey trial on the night prior. That he was not consenting to the death of Jesus. He was not part of the collaboration. But he was a disciple and a follower of Jesus Christ. And now was his time to come out forward. And certainly this would cost him quite a bit, perhaps. He was wealthy and he was wealthy enough and God had positioned him well enough that God would appoint for Joseph to knock on Pilate's door, likely sometime after 6 p.m. when the sun had gone down. Now listen, nobody knocks on Pilate's door in the evening. It'd be like knocking on Donald Trump's door or Joseph Biden's door, right? Unless you're on first name basis, you don't knock on the door. But Joseph of Arimathea has been granted favor by God unto Pilate because, listen, God will honor his son just like he will bring a sacrifice his own way. God is sovereign over the death of his suffering Savior, so God is moving through this man named Joseph and grants favor from an unlikely governor named Pilate to, to take this body down. And so this would be a very unusual request. Because you see, Joseph of Arimathea's didn't come along and ask for bodies of crucified ones. When criminals were crucified, they were the outcasts of society. Remember, he was, he was crucified outside of the gate. That is to say that he was neither Roman nor was he Jew. He wasn't even meant to be a part of the human race. And that was always the case of crucifixion. You have forfeited all of your rights in society. You are a no one. No one took no ones and put him in a rich man's tomb. There was a common grave. They would would pull the body shredded off of the cross and they would sling them into a common grave, unrecognizable and just in a heap. But here we see God's careful attention of the only begotten Son that we learned about in John 3.16 and this precious babe that we learned about that the Magi would travel, that Matthew had told us about, that would lay in a manger and be worshipped by kings and shepherds. Oh, God loved the body of His Son because in the body of Christ was the propitiation for our sins. And so God would treat the body of Jesus with honor because He had accomplished His job. And so Joseph would take this body and he would wrap it. And one had said that likely this was the richest robes that Jesus had ever worn in His life. But now it is death. And as the Marys sit across from the tomb, we see in verse 61 Mary, Magdalene, and the other Mary where they're sitting opposite of the tomb, watching as Joseph cares for the body. And they're just weeping. And help illustrate some of what it must have been like for these faithful disciples, these women, and Joseph to go through. This mourning process and the sorrow, without the greater understanding of what's taking place, I'd like to illustrate it this way: Don't worry, it's a happy ending. You've just been called by a loved one who's in a car accident, and they immediately reassure you that everyone is OK, but the car is demolished. And they ask you if you can pick them up and they let you know where to meet them alongside the road. And Although you are assured by them that they're okay, what's still going on in your heart? You're you're a mess now, aren't you? You're troubled. You're wrecked with fear. You're nervous. You can't get there fast enough. You're concerned. You're saddened. And all the what-ifs just race through your mind of what is it going to look like. And as you get your keys and you get into your car and you travel down the road and you come across a traffic jam and you're slowed down and you're upset by it so you park and you know that they are just beyond sight and so you park alongside the road and you get out of your car and you run ahead and you, you fling yourself into their arms and you, you, you're so excited to be with them but now, now as you look around you realize that the traffic jam that you were annoyed by was because of this accident it hadn't hit you before and so you realize that, it, that this was the cause of the traffic jam. now in the burial of Christ, later when the disciples remember back to Christ's burial, they begin to understand more of the picture that was unfolding for them at the time that seemed to be in the way of God's rescue plan. It seemed like everything was a traffic jam at the cross. Everything was in the way. How is God going to glorify His Son? How is Jesus going to be King everything's in the way. The cross is in the way, and the tomb's in the way, and and I kind of feel like, I'm in the way because I'm not there to stand up for him, and everything's in the way, but now as Matthew writes, Matthew writes looking now from the accident back, and he says, oh, that's the reason for the Jam. And so he's able to write to us with great understanding, and the Spirit of God reveals that to us so that it's just so clear. And as each of these disciples ministered to the body of Christ, they dignify and they bring honor to him now in his hour of death. Now it's not kings like the magi that Matthew had showed us that first saw Jesus. Now it's women and a a man named Joseph. The death of Christ is part of the gospel story and these devout followers bear testimony to this even as God unfolds the importance during their moments of grief, they have no idea how significant of a role they are playing in the unfolding of what God is going to do through an empty tomb. Christians, we we grieve too in the death of Christ. Like and unlike them, now we have better understanding of the events and their significance than they did. But we should, listen, have no less devotion to the meaningfulness of the death of Jesus Christ than they did, even though we know that wasn't the finality. This is our Lord. This is my Savior. This is our Savior. This is our friend. Low in the grave, you lay. Treating the death of Christ with reverence and care is ours to continue. We don't take the death of Christ lightly because we know there's going to be an empty tomb. It was for us he bled and died. And death was an act of his loving will. Like we had seen in the previous verses, Jesus did not give up his spirit, he delivered his spirit. Death was jesus intentional act of delivering himself up for a ransom, just like he promised, and the third section that Matthew brings us to is called this we call the sovereign seal. The stone is secured there 's a seal that secures the stone, and there 's soldiers that secure the tomb and every person involved in securing the tomb would know that it would take a supernatural feat to open it. I mean, we have just as much protection as possibly could be granted. Pilate says to the religious leaders, let it be so, whatever you want. You just go, get out of here, and you, you have my permission. You have the Visa card, and just go, and you secure that tomb. Just Just leave my palace. And so they make every effort, including using Roman authority, and Roman force, and Roman strength, And Roman symbolism, in order to to secure this tomb against the disciples, as if the disciples were even going to show up anyways. But Every person involved in securing the tomb would know that it would take a supernatural feat to open it. They would know the truth behind the lie that they themselves would later publish. And God did everything in these moments, as recorded in here, and also especially in John and in Luke, God made every attempt to make it clear that there could be no reasonable way to excuse away an empty tomb. And the fact is that God will frustrate anybody's attempts to discredit his person and work. Ultimately, ultimately, no one will be successful. Ultimately, no one will be successful at discrediting the gospel of Jesus Christ. Believer, we know, we hear the mocking of the world. We hear the unbelief. We hear the blasphemy. We see the culture so powerfully, loudly, forcefully, seeking to discredit the gospel of Jesus Christ, and even sometimes, to its shame, even the church seems to discredit the gospel of Jesus Christ, in, which, in the way in which the church preaches and lives. But there is no corruptibility in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no fading in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no way for one part of the gospel of Christ to be shaved off or or shaded or, or unshaded in any way. It is an unchanging, faithful gospel because we have an unchanging and faithful Jesus. And it may seem like they're loud, and it may seem like they're popular and it may seem like it's just um, such a a powerful culture. But ultimately, not one part of the gospel of Jesus Christ is ever discredited. Those who look upon this truth must deal with it. There, It is not able to be explained away and the empty tomb is ours to believe and God offers it to us. Unexplainable. It's just unexplainable. How does a man raise himself from the grave? Oh, brother and sister, we have pleaded with God to do that for our loved ones. And we have known powerful men and wealthy men and women in this world, all through world history, who wanted to do this. But this man does. It's unexplainable. And it's impossible. We're placing our faith and trust in a God who can do the impossible and it's miraculous. Yet by God, it has been done for you and it is available to you, this saving, powerful resurrection. It is available for you by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And this is the gospel, that the Christian gospel that we hold to. And we make no apologies that it's unexplainable, that it's miraculous, and that it's impossible. Don't back away from that. And by the way, as Christians, I, as a Christian, I find myself keep stumbling over it. I keep wanting to explain it. I even keep wanting to dive into apologetics to make sure I, I just find every nuance of truth in order to reinforce the gospel. But the fact is, the gospel just sits there as a God thing, and it has to be, because we are incapable of coming up with our salvation and Matthew has been building this all his his book to this peak he has been he took the genealogy of men who died in Matthew chapter 1 and he shows us like 44 names of men who di- who died who went into the grave who didn't live again great men like david and now at the end of his book Now it's a new genealogy. Now it's going to be Jesus, the firstborn from the grave, and now is his genealogy. You see that? He started his book with the genealogy of death, and he ends his book with the beginning of the genealogy of life. There's an arc for you in Matthew. He will lead many sons to glory. And as we look at this, we come away with several truths. Number one, as God craftily cut the seams apart of the Old Covenant, of the Old Testament ceremonial law, God graciously revealed the fulfillment of His plan all along in His Son, Jesus Christ. Matthew is just showing us confrontation after confrontation with the Jewish culture of worship here in Jerusalem. The veil is being torn. Priests are being scandalous. The Passover lamb. And he is just punching away, punching away at the Jewish theology and saying, do you see it? Do you see it? This is the one. And he goes over and over to show that God was not doing away with something that was horrible, that was wrong all the time, but he is saying, that was the picture and now this is the person. Secondly, the first to look upon the cross with some measure of belief would be Gentiles who signal that Jesus died for sinners like you and I. Verse 54, When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. Who was filled with awe? Was it the centurion? It was all the soldiers. And who said truly this was the Son of God? Was it the centurion? Matthew says it was all of them. Luke even expands on this and it's potential that there's either pre-evangelism going on here or maybe even a saving work of God here. But nonetheless, God is putting His Son's sacrifice on display for the Gentiles to behold. And so God is working. He is working about every life and every death according to His plan to glorify Himself both in the saving and the judgment of all life. God is working about. If we might say... I don't know that God is working in in my loved one's life. We're just wrong. You see, if God created life, then He's working in life. God's providence vindicates His Son's prediction and and God's providence preaches that God's faithfulness is to the unfaithful. And lastly, the coming to life from death is as true and effectual today as it was 2,000 years ago. Christ has no less power to work in us His glory than He did on that miraculous day. In Jesus' resurrection, we have life today. No less power, no less effect, no less life. You see, the resurrection of Christ in that sense is as if the resurrection happened today. Today, September 9th, September 18th, 2022. It's as if it happened today. That's how fresh, how full of vitality, is the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. And listen, that resurrection power of Jesus Christ is bringing life to you. Today. Today, just like it just happened. Just like you were Mary coming to the empty tomb. Just like you were Peter who ran past John and had to see that it was truly empty. Brother, sister, in Christ, God's power is working about you a far more weight of glory than you and I can comprehend. And it is a power that is driven from the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. Now, I know that's a spoiler. Matthew 28 will begin this next Sunday. We'll be in that, Lord willing, if he doesn't return. But the tomb is empty and the power is here. And Jesus is saving people like you and I. Let's pray.